Hello and welcome to Superfancast. My name is Chris and this is Season 1, Episode 9, Dinosaur Jr. So if this is your first time aboard the great ship Superfancast, I am riding solo today. I'm riding solo. Matt's away slapping his bass to high society. Uh, I haven't spoken to him much, so for those of you that are missing him, uh, I know he's having a good time, uh, but he's not got great internet on the ship, so I don't even think he's heard the Polvo episode yet. So I'm still waiting to hear his feedback on on how well I edited that. But uh, thanks to everyone who listened to Polvo. We got a few bits of really nice feedback to that. And yeah, it was a really, really fun episode. So yeah, really, really happy we got to do that. And I also discovered a band that I didn't know about before. And I'm really happy that I discovered Polvo. Yeah. So I must admit, I've been listening to loads of Dinosaur Jr. recently and uh, not a great deal yeah not loads of other stuff it's not been a crazy few weeks of loads of music i think maybe i've had a bit going on i'm not not too sure really but when i sat down to to record this evening i was thinking oh what you know what have i been listening to 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 catch up on couldn't couldn't really think of a great deal there's one record that if you are following our new music reviews on blogspot then you'll have already seen my review of it and that is uh, The Walls Are Way Too Thin by Holly Humberstone. is a nice, sweet EP by uh, Holly Humberstone, who is a new artist, very new artist, really, who is creating kind of synth pop. I mean, it's 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 pop. She's a singer-songwriter. It's really good. It's it's really good stuff. And I can't, actually can't stop listening to that. There's only six tracks on that EP, I think. It's not super long, but, you know, I've listened to it a lot over the last two weeks. They're just such good songs that there's not much more you can say about it, really. It's great production, great songs. And, you know, I she should be so incredibly proud for that that to be, you know, so early on in her career and to come up with bangers like that. I, I really hope people start shouting about this girl uh, because, I you know, I can't see that she's got a, a major following just yet. Uh, and the singles that she has released off that EP prior to its release haven't, they haven't broken any records, so I'm hoping that it's a slow burn, and uh, she's going to get some. She's going to get some some good following soon because that's a, a really a really strong pop record. If you want to listen to something like that, then definitely check out uh, "The Walls Are Way Too Thin." Someone else I have been listening to this last week or so is a rapper from Brooklyn called June Marks, and uh, a really strange one. This because, okay, so uh, for a start, I've not had a great relationship with hip-hop lately i've been really uninspired by hip-hop i'm always on the lookout for a new rapper or someone that really blows me away and i've just struggled with that recently i've been looking and looking and not really finding anything you've probably heard me mention loads on recent episodes that um, i'm sort of dabbling a lot with with pharaoh munch and he's he's just one of these artists that um you know all genres have it where when i can't think of you know, I want to listen to some hip-hop. I can't find anyone that's inspiring me. I just default to someone like Ferramonch because I know that he's always going to impress me. He hasn't got a massive back catalogue, but I know that everything he has got is going to impress me. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I've been falling whenever I want to listen to hip-hop lately. I did have a friend around the other day, and we listened to some some old people under the stairs. That record, Stepfather, is just it's quite nostalgic to me, Stepfather by People Under the Stairs, because I had that when I was... Late teens, I think, and I've just got good memories of it. And that's a really good record. But other than that, I've not been listening to any new hip hop. I haven't discovered any new artists. Mick Jenkins had a record out 
that I quite liked recently, but I didn't love it and I didn't listen to it that much. I moved on. So then I just discovered this guy, June Marks. And it's a bit of a strange one because this guy is prolific, super prolific. I mean, he's had so many records out over the last decade. And I feel that I'm I'm missing something here because I think this guy is phenomenal. I really do. Like, And Googling around, he doesn't seem to have a massive following. And I don't know how he can be rhyming that good. You know, it's hit and miss. You know, he's had, like I say, he's been releasing records really consistently over the last 10 years. And some of it's not not mind-blowing, but it's all good. Don't get me wrong. It's all a lot better than a lot of other stuff I've heard recently. So why aren't people talking about him? And that's why I feel that perhaps I'm missing something. Maybe maybe he's not that good. Maybe he's just regurgitating someone else's rhymes and I'm just not noticing or I'm not smart enough to realise. <laughs> but it, it's really, really good. So, yeah, he seems a bit mysterious. You know, he doesn't show his face. He wears a gas mask for a lot. You know, in all his videos, he doesn't really show his face. I think there might be a couple of videos where he shows his face, but he's kind of into the gas mask look. <laughs> and uh, there's like a strong, I don't, I don't know too much about his, his history, but there's, mm, there's, there's a bit of an interesting history there. I'm not going to mention it because I'll probably get it wrong and then I'll sound like an idiot, but there's certainly an undercurrent in all of his music of war and struggle and oppression. Yeah, that, that's a strong theme in, in all of his music. Yeah, hence the gas mask, I guess. But, Either way, I love his use of vocabulary. He's got really strong vocabulary, which is so important to me. That's what I look for in in, in a rapper. Really solid rhyming. And it, it's kind of everything that I want in, in hip-hop at the minute. He's got creative beats, cool samples, thematic, awesome lyricism, clever use of, of vocabulary. As I say, he's got a massive back catalogue. Some of it's a little bit hit and miss, but I do I really like his... He's got a 2014 record called Seven Trumpets Sound, and that's really, really good. It's got all of those things I just mentioned. Really cool samples. It's got amazing rhyming from from June, and real fun um, production on it. You know, not all not all the beats are, are, are mind blowing, but it's it's got enough, you know, real fun production on it to to make me want to keep listening. So, yeah, Seven Trumpets Sound is the is the record I'd recommend at the minute by June Marks, but he's got such a big ca- back catalogue that I'm sure. I'm going to discover more in the coming coming weeks, but I, I I definitely encourage anyone who's heard of June Marks, please get in touch. Am I really slow to the game here? Has everyone heard of this guy? And I just for some reason I've been living under a rock or something like that. Or is it that no one's heard of this guy and he's great? Or is it that no one's heard of him because he's rubbish and I'm and I'm just hearing something wrong? I'm, I'm really not sure. But if anyone's heard of June Marks, definitely get in touch and let me know your thoughts. Um, yeah, what else I've been listening to? So just the last couple of days, I've been listening to her, her's debut album, Back on My Mind. Is it a debut though? I'm not really sure. So her, she's a uh, an R and B singer, H E R. In case you in case you missed her, uh, yeah. So she had a debut album this year called Back on My Mind, but it's a bit it's a bit weird because she did have an album out. In fact, I think she's had a couple of albums out over the last few years, but they're She's been releasing a bunch of EPs and then she'll release an album, which is a compilation of those EPs plus additional material. In fact, I think her first compilation album was two EPs worth and then six or seven tracks of new material on top of that. So, I mean, that's 
that counts as a debut album i think i don't know like does it matter that it wasn't all recorded in the same studio sessions but to me it doesn't like that's that's a debut but anyway the, the one she released this year back on my mind is considered her debut and oh my god it's a lot of music it's a ridiculous amount of music. It's like an hour and 20 minutes or something. And then I think some special releases had some additional tracks on it as well. But even if it doesn't, an hour and 20 minutes is a long record. It's a bit st- like the way records are released these days are a bit straight. I mean, Donda was, was a long one. And then Certified Loverboy was also a long one, wasn't it? So I th- this year has seen some really long albums. And it seems like, I don't know, maybe it's the, maybe it's the way music is being released now. People are kind of less restrained by what you can fit well they're certainly less restrained by what you can fit on a on a on a vinyl uh, but that's been that's happened a long time ago so i don't know why i'm seeing so many long records now but an hour and 20 minutes does seem long she could have capitalized on that a bit better I could have released two records <laughs> but anyway so back on my mind it's good yeah i need to listen to it more i only sort of delved into it a couple of days ago so far i, I must admit i don't love all the cuts but i do love her voice and the way she sings so it's you know one of those ones where I don't necessarily need to love every every track on the album and you know every feature there, but I I do really love her voice and I love her voice enough that if I listen to the whole record, if every now and then she there's a track there that that I really fall for, that's enough for me because the filler and you know the tracks in between, I can just happily listen to her voice. So I'm gonna listen to that. I'm gonna listen to that record a lot more and maybe I'll. Maybe I'll feel differently in a couple of weeks. I'm still early on in it, but yeah, I'm in, I'm enjoying it so far. And that's about, I suppose that's about it that I want to mention. Grammy nominations came out today, this evening, actually. I don't know if it's still on. Maybe it's still on now when I'm recording. I was trying to keep keep on top of it. I was watching it live, but I was commuting at the time. And so I was, it was kind of, connection kept cutting out and I wasn't, I wasn't catching everything. But I don't think, I mean, so far I, I'd had a little update about 10 minutes before recording and so far i don't see anything too shocking nothing like we saw at the at the amas anyway i think everyone knows what i'm talking about it it rhymes with shashin shun smelly i don't know if anyone got that (laughs) i'm not seeing anything strange on the grammys i suppose the only strange one i saw was that abba was nominated for abba's voyage was nominated for album of the year which I don't know, I was talking to the wife about it. I feel like everyone bought their album and it's made number one everywhere. But I think that's because everyone bought that because it was ABBA and because they haven't had a record out for decades and uh, it wouldn't have mattered what was on it. So many people would have bought it. And then I feel like everyone got home, listened to it and then realised it was a bit pants. And so... I don't know if it really deserves to be album of the year. I think, you know, because they're not, they're not selecting, well, I don't know. I was going to say they're not selecting the nominations based off album sales, but but maybe that's something to do with it. I know we've talked about Grammy nominations on here before and they have a, a panel of peers that, that judge it. And I, I guess album sales is partly to do with it. You can't discount album sales, I suppose. But I don't know, there has to be more to it for album of the year. It has to be... a massively impressive record and i don't think i think if that if that same record came out but not by abba it definitely wouldn't have been nominated for album of the year but anyway yeah let, let me look more at the at the nominations and we'll talk about it in the in the next episode and apologies to all the abba fans i don't know if i've got any abba fans listening but apologies 
So that's about it from me. Let's um, get into some Dinosaur Junior. Okay, so Dinosaur Junior are a rock band that formed in 1983 in Amherst, Massachusetts. They were made up of Jay Maskis on guitar and vocals, Lou Barlow on bass and vocals, and Emmett Murphy, known professionally as Murph, on drums. The band released three albums together and soon became known as one of the names in alternative rock. At this point, however, Maskis and Barlow had a falling out and Barlow was kicked out of the band. The lineup then continued to change for several years whilst Dinosaur Jr. released a further four studio albums. In 2005, the original lineup reunited and picked things up right where they left off. They hadn't lost any steam and they've since released record after record and recently their 12th studio album came out in 2021. The band has managed to build and maintain both a hardcore cult following as well as more mainstream appreciation and respect within the industry. Maskis has also been recognized on several occasions as one of the world's greatest guitarists and has proven to be one of the most prolific and creative artists of his generation. And that's Dinosaur Jr. And I hope people don't think I've hyped them too much in those last couple of sentences, but I thought it was important to call out I think it's important to call out, um, you know, Maskis, uh, the recognition that he's got, because I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to go into detail in of, of that in this episode. But outside of Dinosaur Junior, Jay Maskis is just, he's just such a creative, such a creative musician. I mean, we will go into in this episode the input that he has into Dinosaur Junior's work, um, and and how how songwriting is is approached uh, in that band. But outside of Dinosaur Jr., he's in, been in so many other bands, released so much solo material, um, and just seems to have oodles of, of creativity. He's been recognised for that, uh, and, and for his guitar playing as well. Uh, he's, he's regularly on lists of you know hundred greatest rock guitarists or hundred greatest guitarists. And it's also important to call out, in, like I did in those last couple of sentences, that uh, Dinosaur Jr. have, have really uh, built fan bases in a in a few different places been recognized in a few different areas so they do have this i worded it as hardcore cult following and that that is kind of what it is you know you've got that hardcore group of individuals who have been following dinosaur junior since the beginning before they were before they were big and famous and before it was cool and those guys are still around and they have you know they have a true appreciation for for Dinosaur Junior from from the beginning till now, and and understand their nuances and their music and and Maskis and the relationships and and whatnot. But then you've also got, and maybe this is more recent, but you've got a more mainstream appreciation of their music now. So there's certainly people out there who know of like like myself. You know, I'll get into my history with them, but I knew who Dinosaur Junior were and I knew their sound, but I wasn't I wasn't a a hardcore fan of theirs at all it, it well i wasn't even a fan of theirs to be fair like I, I knew who they were they're a name that i think anyone who's into rock music is familiar with whether they know their music or not uh, and then the third group that that dinosaur jr have managed to engage is within the industry i feel that you know there's so many bands out there that would cite dinosaur jr as one of their influences so many musicians out there that would that would cite Maskis as one of their influences and, and someone they look up to. 
So yeah, it's, it's quite impressive actually that this band have managed to, to eke their way into so many parts of um, of music culture um, and yet still not be chart toppers, Grammy winners or anything like that. But yeah, despite all of that, they're still built this name for themselves. So so my history with, with Dinosaur Jr. is pretty limited, very, very limited. I hear songs by them over the last however, you know, however long, decade or something. I've heard songs by them and I probably wouldn't have ever, I mean, Mascus has got a really recognisable voice, but I don't think I'd ever listened to it that much. So listening to their music now, I hear songs and think, oh yeah, I've heard that one. So I've probably heard songs of theirs on the radio and stuff, but I just never recognised it. it was Dinosaur Jr. There's one song and one record by them that I've listened to, and that is, uh, I don't know how I came across it, but a couple of years ago I heard Said the People, which is a song on Farm, and it, I really love the guitar in that song, and I've played that tune a lot. And I, I and I'd also listened to the album Farm a couple of times over the last few years, just because I love that song, Said the People, so much, and so I was kind of looking for that sound still. So I've listened to the, the Farm album uh, a few times, but um, Said the People I, I really love, and it's it's just the guitar in it. And, and I've, I've realised now that actually that's probably not necessarily his best guitar work it's just it's just his sound and and he shreds so much like almost every song there's a there's a face melting guitar solo he he's so i don't know how he's managed to do 12 studio albums with dinosaur jr and everything else he's done uh, with other bands and solo work and he still manages to whack out guitar solos like that he must be repeating himself <laughs> there must be solos on on their 2021 record that were on their 80s stuff but anyway that so I, I loved that tune said the people i've listened to the uh, the rest of that farm album and then that's it really nothing else so that's that's my history with uh, with dinosaur junior until now okay super fans uh, the rules of this game are i have come up with five questions to help us discover a bit more about the band I'm going to be asking those five questions to a self-proclaimed super fan in a little bit to find out if they are a fan or a fraud. Today's super fan is Joel from Colorado, who we're going to meet a little bit later. He's going to get one point per correct answer, five correct answers, and he will be labeled a super fan for the rest of his life. If he gets nothing right, he's going to be a fraudster. And somewhere in between, we'll, we'll figure it out as we go. So no Matt to, to quiz this time. So I'll be quizzing myself. Question one. What was track one on the original release of the self-titled album Dinosaur? And the correct answer is Forget the Swan. So that was the, the, the original release came out on Homestead, I believe. And uh, yeah, so Forget the Swan was the first track. And it was reissued on Merge in 2005. And they added Bulbs of Passion as the first track on the record. They also added a, 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 a last track to the record as well. They added a live performance of Does It Float. But yeah, the, the first track changed. Forget the Swan was originally uh, the first track. It's much more melodic than Bowls of Passion. Very, well, it's very different, actually, I would say. Bowls of Passion is got, it's very punk. You know, it's clearly got a lot more punk influence on it. F- personally, I don't think it's the best 
opening to a career, but then it wasn't the first track when the album was first issued, so it wasn't really the opening to their career. It does seem a bit odd to to add it in so much later as the first track, but the reason was, you know, this was a, a request from Maskis. He said he asked for that because it gave them their new direction and it felt like it was their own sound. Um, so I guess he felt that by the time they'd finished recording Dinosaur, Forget the Swan was perhaps not a reflection of where they'd got, got to as a band once they'd developed their sound, whereas Bulbs of Passion was. But as I say, Bulbs of Passion is a difficult a difficult track to introduce a band to the world with. Um, if they had originally released it back in whenever it was, 80, uh, 83, 84, if they'd originally released it with Bulbs of Passion on there, it wouldn't have worked for me. But it's a really, it's a, this record is all over the place, actually, like it really is. There's some real fast punk rhythms on there, but then there's some also some slower, more melodic stuff. The the vocal delivery from Maskis changes throughout. There's some real screaming, shouting, and then there's some of that more recognizable singing from him. It's a bit of a mess, if I'm if I'm honest. This record is is a bit of a mess. We've covered a lot of different bands on on this on the podcast and debut albums are they can be hit or miss they really can some bands their debut album is so full of their all their influences and they haven't yet discovered who they are as a band and so that can be difficult for an audience to take in by the time they've released their second or third studio album they've they've kind of found their sound and don't get me wrong there's some brilliant debut albums out there that don't fall into that trap but i think this record dinosaur has definitely fallen fallen into that trap. It's it's very up and down. The there's no clear style there. I mean, there's definitely the, the the beginnings of of some 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 individualism and some style, but I think it's there's too many different influences and they're a little bit a little bit confused. I hope the the dinosaur junior fans out there don't hate me for that. But it's a difficult it's a difficult one to start with, and unless you were there in 1983 or whenever it was and and you discovered this record when it first came out unless you were there at that time i would say definitely don't start with this album just skip this album start with you're living all over me and then go back to it at a later date (laughs) i mean this record was self-produced perhaps that wasn't a great decision for their for their debut they could have done with a bit of bit of a hand holding there maybe and it, it says on the record that it's recorded at Chris Dixon's house. <laughs> That's the studio that was used, Chris Dixon's house. This was this was a legit studio, though. So Chris Dixon was a local guy who apparently ran the PA at every every punk show locally. That's what that's what uh, Maskis said. He had an engineer at the studio who was, according to Murph, was a jazz fusion guy. So he didn't understand Dinosaur Jr. at all, and there were some tensions there. So maybe that's also maybe that's also the case. You know, if the engineer on you know who who assisted them had no understanding of what they were trying to do and came from a jazz background, maybe they were not. Maybe the the album was not being treated the way it should have been. And and yeah, I saw I saw an interview with Lou Barlow who said, "quote We went to this basement studio out in the woods, run by a long-haired hippie guy, and spent two days there." So that was Chris Dixon's house. But as I say, it was a legit studio. It was just maybe it didn't have a name. <laughs> and it was kind of in the middle of the woods. But that first first album, Dinosaur, Jay Maskis wrote every word and every note on that album. And and he produced it. So it really is 
uh, the Jay Maskis show. And actually, maybe we'll come into this more as, as we go on, but quite a lot of their music, even to date, is is very much... I mean, there's a lot more input from Maskis than anyone else. I don't know why Barlow and Murph put up with it, but, well, I think Barlow doesn't put up with it too much. But but Murph, I mean, he's he often doesn't have a great deal of creative input in into the music. From my understanding... Maskis will often record the demos himself with uh, he'll be he'll be doing the drum drum part the guitars and the vocals um sorry no vocals I think I think vocals tend to come at the very end so he'll he'll record the guitar and, and drum parts and uh, maybe in the early days he also did that with the, with the bass as well I think now he doesn't I think I think Lou Barlow does uh, have uh, full creative um, creative input on on the bass but he'll record the the drum and guitar parts, and then he'll say to Murph, "Play this. <laughs> this is what I want played." So yeah, it's it's not you know Murph doesn't have a, a massive say. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe hardcore fans, if if you think that Murph does have a more input than I'm giving him credit for, then um, then let me know. And when I say give him credit for, I don't want it to sound like I think he's sitting on his ass. Actually, I think it's the other way around. I think Maskis is probably a little bit dominating and he wants to have control over everything. But um, but certainly that first record, Dinosaur, and maybe later stuff as well, uh, Maskis really wrote everything uh, and just told them this is this is how it should sound. This is what we're going to play. And some, some of the later records when the band split, I think Green Mind is the biggest case of Maskis playing pretty much everything. On Green Mind, Murph plays drums on three tracks on that record, and he has some other uh, he has some other musicians come in as well. But a lot of the record, Murph is uh, sorry, uh, Maskis is playing everything, so he's a real virtuoso. And actually, he, Maskis was a drummer uh, until not long before Dinosaur Junior got together, and he transitioned to guitar, and he's become yeah a pretty phenomenal guitarist and even in the early days he was still a good guitarist so he he picked he picked the guitar up real quick real quick and he he flips around with Lou Barlow sometimes so on some tracks there are some tracks throughout in their in their catalog where Barlow will play play the six string and and Maskis will will jump on the bass so yeah he's very versatile but yeah so there you go so the track listing for for Dinosaur has has changed over the years by Maskis's uh, request so question two, who painted the cover art for a number of records throughout the late 80s and 90s, including You're Living All Over Me and Bug? And the answer to that is Maura Jasper. So Maura Jasper is a visual artist and filmmaker from Worcester, Massachusetts. So she's fairly local to the boys. And she has, you know, I called out You're Living All Over Me and Bug. So that's just to give the give the super fan a helping hand, but actually she's she's done artwork for quite a few records and also on their debut album as well. The debut album's a bit of a weird one because the debut album the cover is not in the style that she has used for for other uh, for the other albums. The debut album looks almost like a I think it almost looks like a collage of images. You know, it's, it's a sketch. Apologies. Um, but it's a black and white sketch, a bit more realistic than her other stuff, which is a bit more surreal. Her other albums, uh, the the other albums that she's she's worked on, "You're Living All Over Me" is a really cool album cover. It's a real creepy cover of a person with another person on their back, 
but it almost looks as though they're merged together. Uh, I really like it, and it's very reminiscent of, of Jasper's style too. You know, the other the other records that she's worked on have a, a very a very recognisable style. But all all of Dinosaur Jr.'s records have, have a really cool piece of artwork on the front, generally. Apart from Green Mind, which is a photo, but all the others have a have a really cool piece of artwork. A little bit about You're Living All Over Me. So that was their second studio album. And I think probably, retrospectively, is considered by most people as uh, their best. It is, a, it is a really good record. It's probably not my favourite, but, you know, I've not been listening to Dinosaur Jr. that long. I've had two weeks, Baptism of Fire... So maybe as I listen more, the album will will grow on me. It's got a really intense introduction to the album, some real like black metal screaming vocals. But I'd say the production is is immediately better, not significantly, but it is better. At times, Maskis' vocals on this are, are layered a bit, and there seems to be a, a bit more consideration as to the treatment of his vocals throughout this record, which is really cool. There's some there's some great tunes on this though, the lung. Uh, the Lung is one of those songs that I knew beforehand. I just didn't know it was by Dinosaur Jr. It's got some real punky tempo changes in that. One thing, I'd, one thing that I'd noticed on on this record is though, on Maskis's guitar playing. Now I'm not, I'm not a great guitar player at all by any stretch of the imagination, but it does feel that occasionally, occasionally he hits a bum note, and you know you expect that on a live. A live session, but in the studio you'd think, oh, well, they would just re-record that, or he'd he'd attack that solo again. But it's not uncommon you hear a, a note and you think, oh, that's just a little bit sounds that sounds a little bit flat. I probably wouldn't have hit that note. But it's interesting that they keep that in. It's kind of within his style. I like it though. It's it you know it's it's not a neg- It's not a criticism that I'm that I'm making there. I'm just making an observation. Uh, and I've I've seen him talk about how he he compensates for that in when they're playing live. And maybe he does it in the studio as well, but you know he he certainly likes to compensate for that with the whammy bar. So he says he overuse of the whammy bar to 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 stretch his sounds in, in back into the back into the uh, where they should be. And maybe that you know that adds to his his quite a unique sound. But he really does attack that whammy bar. But you're living all over me. I mean, there's there's other great there's sludge feast as well is is an amazing tune. You know, having listened to Dinosaur first and then You're Living All Over Me, I'd say Sludge Feast is, is quite a new sound for them. It's kind of like an early metal sound. Lots of sort of nasty, distorted guitar. Um, they slowed things down quite a bit for this. And Mascus's vocals are completely different twist and not what you expect. You know, when you hear the music and then you hear the vocals come in, that's the way he delivers it is not what you're expecting. A killer solo on Sludge Feast. And it's kind of... More so than anything on Dinosaur, I think the solo in Sludge Feast kind of sets the scene, for me at least, of what to expect from Maskis' guitar playing over the coming 30 years. <laughs> like, little hints of it at that stage, but it's, I think Sludge Feast is the first, the f- going through their whole catalogue, that was the first song that I heard, I thought, oh yeah, that's that's killer, I really like that. There's some tracks there that feature Lou Barlow singing. Uh, interestingly, Maskis has got quite a distinctive not quite. He's got a very distinctive voice, and most people would probably say it's not the most attractive sound. Again, Dinosaur Junior fans, don't shout at me. If you're really a fan, then you will not be surprised that I said that because I'm sure I'm not the first person to ever tell you that that Maskis hasn't got the prettiest voice in the world. But what is interesting is hearing the songs that Lou Barlow sing on. 
especially on on you're living all over me you know in, in recent years his voice i think has has changed a little bit but so has mascus his, his voice has changed a little bit too but lose for example on you're living all over me Barlow's not got a much better voice, and <laughs> so that made me laugh. I'd never heard Lee Barlow sing until I got to this point, but I I do know Mascus's very recognisable sound, and then hearing Lee Barlow sing, I think, oh well, <laughs> you're kind of both in the same ballpark there, aren't you? And then Polido is a really odd, a really odd addition to the album. Polido is kind of like a folky acoustic song, really different. Doesn't sound like Dinosaur Junior, and then after like two minutes. It turns to, yeah, it turns to like changing radio frequencies, picking up like Jesus's name and stuff. And, and then it kind of tunes again into a slow acoustic folky song. It's really odd. It's really weird. I don't understand the, I don't understand that one. So that, so up until this point, actually I didn't mention, but up until this point, the band was called Dinosaur. They weren't called Dinosaur Junior. And then after uh, You're Living All Over Me, they were sued by a band called The Dinosaurs. I don't know much about the dinosaurs, but they were sued by the dinosaurs, and so they changed their name to Dinosaur Junior to avoid the uh, lengthy lawsuit. It does seem weird that the dinosaurs weren't happy with a band being called Dinosaur, but they were fine with a band being called Dinosaur Junior. It's just the whole... uh, I don't know. I mean, how many episodes have we done where the band has been sued for their name or for a sample? That's, That's it. You know, so many... It's so hard to avoid, isn't it? It seems impossible to avoid in this industry. Anyway... So then after Dinosaur became Dinosaur Junior, the next record they released was Bug. And so this was another one that was, um, the artwork was done by Maura Jasper. The Bug album cover is really weird, creepy. And I must admit, I'm not even sure what it is. I think it might be a bug, but I can't, or maybe it's a person kind of crouched down. I'm not, I'm really not sure. It's just kind of like the color is kind of like an orangey brown and then painted on, it's kind of sideways lettering. It just says Bug. And then painted on the left, you've got a, a something. As I say, it's either a, meant to be a bug of sorts, a parasite, or yeah, maybe it's a person. I'm really not sure. It's not my favourite piece from from Jasper, to be honest. It's not the best. It's not my favourite album cover. But I like that they use artwork for their album covers. You know, paint paintings rather. I like that they use paintings. But that one's not my favourite. So notable parts of um, of Bug. Well, actually, just to, just to quickly say, the band have, uh, had called out. I think this is. I think this was Mascus. I read said that Bug was uh, a really bad time for them. They were not. They weren't getting on at this point. It was a. It was a real problem for them. In fact, here, here's a quote. So he said, "Bug was kind of a bad time because we weren't getting along. This was a major problem for the band. We weren't getting along at all during Bug, and the band was kind of falling apart. That was the worst part. So yeah. So there you go. I must admit the the, the album though doesn't sound that way at all. You, you can't tell that they're they're not getting on. There's some really good songs on there. The, the band the record opens with Freak Scene. It's a really good song. One of probably for me one of the first really memorable hooks on a Dinosaur Junior song. It's kind of it's a skate rock tune really. Really awesome guitar throughout. But that goes without saying. You're gonna hear me say that a lot. A lot of their tracks awesome guitar playing. So many faces to the guitar parts as well. Maskis, he does such a great job. In fact, the whole band, I'll say. But Maskis first, he does such a great job at making his guitar sound like five guitars. There is so much noise and so many levels to the music that you don't expect from a three-piece. It's just mind-blowing sometimes when you hear their records to to think that this is a three-piece playing. It sounds like a, a, a bloody orchestra. 
of you know five five guitars and two bass players and it's just insane another so they always come on this record a, a, a punk rock song a very punk rock. in fact this this record altogether bug i would say there's a bit of a genre shift or it's a genre refinement in that i would classify a lot of the songs on this record as skate rock or punk rock but you know more refined into those styles whereas i think dinosaur was dinosaur was all over the place and certainly parts of you're living all over me are a little bit confused. I know that's that's obviously the you know the one that everyone loves, but there are tracks on there that seem a bit, you know, what are you doing? Whereas Bug does feel like okay, well this is this is like a kind of a skate rock band now. Just a, a bit more about about that sound though, that that noise rock sound and how they you know how impressed I am that they do that as a three piece. I looked into to Lou Barlow's bass playing because I was watching them live, and I was really confused because I was thinking. Who's playing bass? Because you see Maskis on his on his guitar, it's clear what he's doing, and then you look to the right of him and you see this other chap who I didn't know was Lou Barlow because it's the first time I've seen them. But he's strumming away, and I was I was trying to get a glimpse. Is that is that a bass or is that a guitar? Is he playing rhythm guitar? I thought he was playing rhythm guitar. But then I noticed it is a bass, and I thought oh, I'm gonna have to watch, you know, watch some videos of this guy playing. And yeah, and, and he's strumming his his bass. He's playing chords on his bass and and hitting it hard. I was watching a, a video of him talking about how he developed his style and being against Mascus, he said, I'm playing next door to one of the loudest guitarists I've ever known. And and Mascus likes it loud. He really likes everything turned up to 11. And Barlow says, well, you know, I, I started hitting the strings harder because I just need to get as much sound out of them as possible. So he's whacking the strings and then he discovers, you know, if, if I'm accidentally hitting the others as well, well, I'm, you know, I might as well just be strumming a chord. So that's how he developed his sound, just to try and get as loud a sound as possible. And he certainly uses, I think he uses the bass almost like you would a rhythm guitar, but he's got enough bass tone on there that it's providing that that bass foundation for, for the songs as well. But it's, it's quite unique. I mean, maybe it's not if you're a bass player. Maybe there's loads of guys out there that use the bass in that way. But for someone who's not a bass player, I think for me that's quite unique. I've not seen people, I've not seen many, if any, bass players playing it in that way. It's it's cool. It's really cool. And it certainly adds to their sound. And live performances, you know, in the last episode, the Polvo episode, we went on and on about how, you know, every review talked about comparing them to Sonic Youth and it got boring. Well, I'll tell you what, Dinosaur Jr. is kind of the same thing with their volume every single review of their live performances talks about this is the loudest band i've ever heard and mascus said that in amherst they were banned from every every bar because they were too loud so they had to start going further afield to get gigs because they you know, no one would let them play anymore because they would play too loud i'd love to i must admit i'd love it's a band i'd really quite like to see live it's, i think it'd be a real experience and that's about it for um for Mara Jasper. Her artwork is really cool. Some of the other albums that she didn't she didn't do artwork for have also got have also got cool covers. They're all paintings. Everything is paintings apart from Green Minds. There's a there's a photo of a of a girl smoking a cigarette on the beach, which is a really cool photo. But uh, the the albums that have have artwork is I I really really like. So moving on to question 3. What is the name of the recording studio at Jay's Amherst home? And the answer to that is Bisquitine Studio. 
or Biscuitine Studio. I really, I don't know what it means. And I did look up, I did try to find out what it means. Biscuitine. If anyone knows what Biscuitine is, maybe it's a brand of something. I don't know. Please, please get in touch and let me know what that is or if I'm pronouncing it wrong. But either way, it's the, it's the top floor of his Amherst home. And Dinosaur Jr. recorded everything from 2007 onwards. So they, you know, they kind of split. Like after the band broke up, then, or, you know, the, the, the classic lineup of the band, Lou Barlow, Murph and Jay Maskis, they broke up and Maskis continued releasing music as Dinosaur Jr. with a few different lineups. And then eventually he, yeah, he packed it in. And it was not until, or well, eight years later that they reunited Barlow, Murph, and Mascus. So that was 2005. And from then on, you know, their first studio album after that was 2007. So everything from that 2007 album onwards was recorded at Biscuitine Studios, which, as I say, is just the top floor. He's, he's got a recording studio. He's built a recording studio on the top floor of his house. Yeah. He's, he's also given the space out to to other people as well. So I was reading an interview with, with Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth, funnily enough. <laughs> Friend of the show. <laughs> He recorded his second solo record at Biscuitine Studios. And he said, in fact, sorry, no, this this quote was not from Thurston Moore. This was from his producer. I don't know who produced who produced Thurston Moore's record. But his producer said, we decided to work in Dinosaur Jr.'s Jay Maskis's Biscuitine Studio, where Dino did their Beyond album. This worked out very nicely as it allowed Thurston to yell down the stairs every time he needed a shredding guitar solo and Jay would trundle up, plug in, and burn. So there you go. If you get to use, if you use the Biscuitine Studio, you also get a, a guitar solo from Jay Maskis if you want one. So Amherst is the town that that Maskis grew up in. Murph and Lou were not from Amherst. I, I can't remember where they're from. They were from a, a town just down the road. But Maskis was was born in Amherst, and fifty years later, he still lives there. He did do some time based in New York when Dinosaur was starting out. He said that you know that they needed to be in New York to, yeah, to sell to sell dinosaur. Really, that's that's where they needed to be. He didn't spend long there, and he moved back to to Massachusetts. And he seems very at home in Amherst. Amherst, actually, there's a there's if you look on YouTube, there's an interview. I can't remember who the interview is by, but anyway, just search for Jay Maskis at home, and some magazine did an interview with him in his house, kind of talking about his house. And yeah, he seems really happy there. His house is known as the Tibetan house because its previous owner was Robert Thurman, who's a big Buddhist scholar. And also Robert Thurman is the father of Uma Thurman. That's a, that's about it on Robert Thurman. Just thought that was interesting. But this house is one mile away from Maskis's childhood home. And he says he never felt the need to be elsewhere. So yeah, he's super happy in Amherst, riding his bike, recording his music. Seems like a very chill environment. So Beyond was the first record they cut there. That was their comeback. So they actually reformed in 2005, but then they didn't release Beyond until 2007. So their comeback performance was on The Late Late Show with, with Craig Ferguson. And it was a great performance too. They played The Lung and they were they were all sharp. Maskis had so much energy. He'd already gone totally grey by that point. So I don't know how old. He can't have been that old, 2005. Was he 40s? Maybe he wasn't even 40. I don't know. But either way, you know, he's totally grey. He's got this long, straight grey hair. But he's just got loads of energy. And Murph is pretty cool. But he doesn't seem to be a kid anymore. One thing I noticed on the uh, on the show, it was the first time I'd watched them live when I watched this performance. 
And so it was the first time I'd seen Murph play, and he was completely different to how I expected. Murph's early drumming was much more, uh, you know, to listen to, was much more a punk style. And I don't know much about Murph, but I know that, that Maskis was heavily influenced by... In fact, Murph had played in, had been playing in a hardcore band as well. Not Deep Wound, but a different band prior to Dinosaur. And, and Maskis is... You know, Maskis was was produced, writing the music in those early days anyway. But but it did seem that Murph's drumming on that those first couple of records was heavily influenced by by punk. And so I expected when seeing him play, I expected him to be an animal, but he's really not. He's really very relaxed behind the drum kit. He's quite a chill drummer. It seemed a bit weird. But his drumming has also calmed down over the years, and it's it's hard to know because of because of Maskis's influence on the songwriting. It is difficult to know if the calming of, of Murph's drumming is Murph or it's Maskis. It could be Maskis saying, play it this way, rather than the Murph coming down. But I much prefer his drumming in the later years. I mean, certainly their most recent albums. I've been listening to a lot there. I think it was 2016, Give a Glimpse of What You're Not. I really like that record. And his drumming on that is, is very different to those early years. I mean, Green Mind, the drumming is notably different where where Maskis is playing instead of Murph. And that's much more reminiscent of... I don't know if it can be reminiscent because we're talking about the past. The drumming from the most recent albums is much more reminiscent of Maskis's drumming on Green Mind. Yeah. And just a, one real quick word about Green Mind since we're on it. The track Green Mind, the last track on the record, is a killer tune. There's no way if I was producing that record I would have put Green Mind as the last track on the album for a start it's the title track I don't know why you put the title track on at the end but also it's just it's a killer tune killer guitar in it you shouldn't have that as the last anyway so question four what year did Dinosaur Jr. play Lollapalooza that was in 1993 and Jay says it was the worst touring experience of his life I don't know why, to be honest. I saw in one interview he said that he was duped into playing Lollapalooza, which it's not impossible. It's not impossible. That's the music industry, isn't it? Sometimes bands don't have a great deal of say in it. So I can't imagine that their label said, you're playing, we've got you on Lollapalooza, you're playing it. And whether they liked it or not, they had to play. To be fair, I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't like it. It's it's just a festival. You're just playing live. If you enjoy playing live, then playing to a big crowd. I think that you know, festivals for a lot of bands can be a bit of a tough gig because you know that the crowd are not necessarily there to see you. They could be there to see you know, five other acts and you just happen to be on. So it's, it's probably a very different vibe from the crowd. But he, he said it was the, the worst touring experience of his life. One thing he has said, he feels that Dinosaur are not a band that can pull in new fans at a festival. So I guess there's some bands that have a have a catchy enough sound that they can turn up to a festival and people who have never heard them before will see them live and go, oh, wow, I'm going to go out and buy that record. Maskis thinks that, and he might be right, but he thinks that Dinosaur don't have that sound. And so people who've never heard their music before are not going to, are not going to love it first time when they hear them live. The people that are loving Dinosaur at a live gig are people that have already know their music uh, have already have already collected a couple of their records and seen them live a few times so maybe that's it you know the the the, the label will have signed them up to 
that would have got them the gig at Lollapalooza because they felt, well, that's going to sell records. Uh, and Maskis thinks that it, it doesn't. It didn't sell them any additional records. So it was it was not a fruitful uh, endeavor. There's a, there's a great interview with them on 120 Minutes in 1993, which is between sets at Lollapalooza. And the guy interviewing them, maybe he didn't know what Maskis is like. And Mike Johnson, actually, is... Because in those years there was no there was no Lou Barlow at that point, so Mike Johnson had had, had come on, and Johnson was similarly uh, uncharismatic at times. Although I feel with Johnson it was it was a, a front. I think that it was put on. Whereas Maskis it's not put on. That's his personality. The guy interviewing them, he asks them how how their set went, and Maskis says the crowd were comatose, but he wasn't being funny. He was being serious. He said, oh, the crowd were totally comatose. He said, I don't know, it's hot out there. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe, maybe that's why. But he was really not happy about, about the crowd. And then and then the guy gets the guy gets Maskis to introduce the next song. And he's he's re- Maskis is really confused. And he's <laughs> he's got he doesn't know what to say. And he's just fumbling around. Oh, uh, 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 a lot of that. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, he's just so deadpan. But as I say, I don't think... I, I think that's just his personality. Because I've watched enough interviews with him, you know, even very relaxed behind-the-scenes environments. You know, like that like that interview in his house in Amherst. That's just him. He's just got a really... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it without sounding offensive. I don't mean to be offensive. But he's just got a really effortless voice. And he seems a lot of the time very awkward well the awkwardness is is strange because he does seem very awkward but then at the same time he seems to be someone who he spends a lot of time doing but speaking events he does a lot of interviews he does things like that and for someone with his level of charisma that does seem like an odd choice but he he talks a lot he's not afraid of you know he, he i mean he goes for interviews but when he's when he's on them he doesn't talk a lot often they're incredibly awkward you know, the interviewer is really trying to get an answer out of him and he'll just mumble a bit or not give them an answer. And he's not being difficult. That's just him. He's a, it's, a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very odd one. And I thought that it was perhaps... He, he went grey very young, so I think he looks a lot older than he actually is. <laughs> but I always saw interviews with him with, with the long grey hair and thought, oh, in his younger years, he, he wouldn't have been like that. But no, no, if you see interviews in his younger years, he's exactly the same. In his twenties, he's still that charismatic, and you kind of think he's just incredibly stoned all the time. But he's straight edge. He's yeah, he doesn't doesn't do any drink or drugs or smoking or straight. Just a quick thing about straight edge. I didn't know what straight edge was. I didn't know it was a thing. So I, I'm vegan, and I also don't drink or smoke or do drugs. But I thought I didn't know it had a name. But it turns out I'm straight edge. So straight edge is apparently, it's like a, a punk subculture of people that are rebelling against the stereotypical punk image. And so they abstain from, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, but I just kind of, I read a quick Wikipedia article on what straight edge meant. But they abstain from drink and drugs and often have vegan diets as well and can abstain from other things. So yeah, that's what straight edge is. And so Mascus 
it gets called out on that quite a bit in interviews. They say, so when did you go straight edge or whatever? So I think he's he's said in a couple of interviews that over the years he's he's occasionally had a drink, whatever. It's not it's not a big deal. But pretty much for his entire adult life he's not he's not done any drink or drugs. And he puts that he puts the drugs down to he grew up in an area. So Amherst was apparently a had a, a big hippie community and he got so tired as a youth of seeing strung out hippies on acid and stoned all the time that it it became it there was nothing cool about it and so it became far cooler to not be like the hippies that's how he got onto that but yeah i can't remember why i started talking about straight edge oh yeah because his, his personality kind of suggests he's stoned all the time lou barlow on the other hand uh, has got quite a bit of personality i would say and in interviews when lou speaks up you get the interviewer gets quite a bit from him. Uh, I quite enjoy an interview with Lou Barlow. He's interesting and he's got a lot to say. And maybe those years when Lou was not in the band and they had that sort of changing lineup, well, and they had Mike Johnson as well, that's something that they missed, maybe. So I, I guess those early years, there aren't, I haven't seen hundreds of interviews from the early years, but more recent years, the interviews that I've seen of the of the classic lineup. It's interesting to hear Lou speak, and you definitely get way more of an interview when he's present. Uh, so that was Lollapalooza. Other live performances, they, they put on a fantastic live show. And actually, I should probably call out the performance at Lollapalooza. I, I did watch it, and it's a, it's a good show. And one thing to mention about the performance there, and, and maybe some others as well, but particularly there, I think, because it was such a, a large gig, is Mascus's voice often... And it's a taste thing, sure. I, I appreciate there's going to be fans out there that disagree with this. But Maskis's voice in those much more in the earlier recordings where his delivery is, is very subtle and he, he doesn't project very much. And that allows him to emphasize that drool. And yeah, and that's that's kind of his sound. Whereas on that Lollapalooza performance, he's projecting far more. He's much louder and where he's putting that power behind it, I feel he's more tuneful, definitely. He, he can sing a bit better at that volume, and I preferred it, personally. As I say, there's there's probably a lot of Dinosaur Jr. fans out there that love the way his voice sounds anyway, so they're not going to necessarily agree with me, but but there you go. That's, that's, what, that's what Chris thinks. So question five. Got through these quick, didn't we? The music video to which song features a skateboarding dog? And the answer to that is tiny. Now, there are a lot of there are a lot of Dinosaur Junior music videos out there. I have not seen them all. They have released uh, a, a lot of music videos. This one for Tiny is is really cool. So it starts off with the dog sleeping whilst dinosaur are, are rehearsing, and then I think you're supposed to be going into the dog's dream. So then you see what the dog's dreaming about. And he's just hanging out with Jay and busting around town. And, and at one point he's skateboarding. Yeah, and that's about that's about it really. I mean, that's the, that's the question anyway. What song features a skateboarding dog? Well, Tiny features a dog and at, some, at one point in it he's skateboarding. Yeah, and the dog is Beefy, which is Jay's bulldog. I don't think it's Jay's first bulldog. I think he's had a few dogs over the years. But yeah, this is Beefy. And Tiny is a single off Give a Glimpse of What You're Not, which I think I mentioned earlier is, is an album I really like. It's a really good album. It was it came out August 2016. It was their 11th studio album. Pretty impressive that I've, I like their 11th record the, the most. Uh, their sound, 
it's it's a weird one, you know. We we've covered bands that often have the golden number, which is six. A lot of bands have six studio albums. That seems to be the golden number of uh, of studio records. But even some of the more prolific artists we've covered, like Bjork or Mogwai, where they've had ten plus studio albums, often you can hear the sound progress. Maybe not so much Mogwai. I don't know. Mogwai had had a quite a distinctive sound, and in each album can be can be taken separately. But but a lot of bands you can hear the progression as you go from you know through their career beginning to end whereas dinosaur junior a bit of a weird one in that i think those first two maybe three records they refined their sound they found who they were but then i think they've been pretty consistent since then you know there have been small refinements you know gradual refinements but they're not i wouldn't use the word progress and i don't they're progressing or evolving their sound too much that's not a negative. That's not a slur on them. I think they've they've been successful at figuring out early on in their career who they are as a band and and sticking to that and doing that well. So yeah. So even though okay, so I say their eleventh studio album is the one that I like the most. It's not worlds apart from their third. It's the same. It's incredibly recognizable. You know, if you played someone Bug, and then you played them Give a Glimpse of of what you're not. Yeah, no one could deny that's the same band. You know, it's it their their style is is close enough on 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 pretty much all their records, with the exception of Dinosaur and maybe parts of You're Living All Over Me, which is understandable. It's so early on in their career. Anyway, back to back to the video for for Tiny. So this video was directed by Laurie Collier, and Laurie Collier met Jay in 2013. Oh, it probably would have been earlier than that. Yeah, but she met Jay when she brought Jay in to score some of her movie, which came out in 2013, so it would have been a bit before. Her movie was called Sunlight Junior. Now you have to wonder, <laughs> it seems weird, but you have to wonder if Dinosaur Junior inspired the name of the movie somehow, or if she brought Dinosaur Junior in because her movie was called Sunlight Junior. It just seems like too much of a coincidence. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it just does seem like a weird coincidence. So her movie was called Sunlight Junior. She brought in Dinosaur Junior to score some of the movie. And that's when she first met Jay. And then they continued to have a relationship, a friendship over the years. And she was contacted to do a video for them for, for this this track, Tiny, off Give a Glimpse of What You're Not. And how she came up with the idea seems very up in the air, really. A, a real stab in the dark. But she said because she got to know Jay over the years, she discovered he had more of an interest, more interests than just music. He also had an interest in skateboarding and he had an interest in bulldogs. So she'd read online about skateboarding bulldogs and she thought, why don't we give this a try? Now, as strange as that sounds, that is what she said. So <laughs> I suppose we have to believe it. And also it made me think, I've seen a skateboarding dog before and I think that was a bulldog. And the way Laurie Collier explained it does make it sound as if bulldogs can skateboard is that a thing is it that bulldogs can skateboard or is it that this particular bulldog is comfortable skateboarding i talked this over with the wife we were discussing it and we thought maybe it's a movement thing maybe some most most dogs could not sit on a skateboard because the movement freaks them out but something to do with bulldogs it doesn't freak them out i i really don't know it's a cool video though tiny there's there's quite a few cool videos and, and as i say there's there's a lot of videos by by Dinosaur Jr. Another cool video is for Over It, which shows them skating around 
uh, well, uh, Mascus is on his skateboard, and the other two are on their BMXs, and it's just kind of like it's just like a skate video, really. It's just like a little video part. But they, yeah, credited on the on the video are stunt doubles, you know, for the for the skateboard and for the BMXs, which is kind of disappointing because the the, the video is filmed or you know is filmed like it is a hundred percent them. It's not like, I mean, they're, they're pulling cool tricks, but it's still like it's shot like it's definitely them. It's not to the point where they're insane tricks they're pulling and we're meant to. It, it's kind of tongue in cheek. Like it feels like we're meant to believe it is them, which is a bit disappointing that you see that it wasn't. <laughs> it's, it was done by professional skateboarders and BMXers, and somehow it's it's made it look as if it is them. But anyway, whatever. From the really old ones, just kind of like a classic 90s video is um, Start Chopping, uh, which feels really 90s, which has got green screened images behind the band. And you know, Maskis looks unrecognizably young in that. You know, it's before he went grey. <laughs> but uh, I, I like that. I think it's probably also because I like the song. Get Me as well is another another cool video from from back in the day. And there's anyway, there's loads of it's gone YouTube. There's so many videos by them. And that takes us to takes us to the end. Obviously, we didn't have a mat here today. But should we guess what he would have got? Oh, he wouldn't have got five because he's deliberately never got a five. He does it deliberately, I think. He seems comfortable on three. He's had a few good threes in his time. What we really want to know, though, is how does our superfan do? So I spoke to Joel from Colorado a few days ago. And Joel's a good sport because actually we kept him hanging for a, about a month where we, we slid the Polvo episode in before him. Um, but it was he was excited to speak and uh, I was really happy to talk to him and find out a bit about, you know, what, what it is that he loves about, about Dinosaur. And uh, let's see let's see how he did with my questions. You are with us today because of your love for Dinosaur Jr. So can you please tell us why and when you fell in love with Dinosaur Jr.? Uh, I was 14 years old. I think I heard him on the radio for the first time when I was 14. I heard the single Start Shopping. And uh, I was probably just starting to, I think it's been a, probably been a couple years where I was starting to buy my own music and get into that kind of stuff. And so I kind of rushed out and bought their album. And a couple months later, I was able to, when it was able to see them live in concert. And that was unlike anything I had ever experienced in my life. Just the sheer volume of the show, just the mystique of them a little bit. Like there's just a little bit of like, what is going on? This is not U2. This is not Depeche Mode or other stuff that I'd heard. And, and uh, the cool thing about it was later on i realized oh my gosh they've got all this other cool stuff that i've never heard before and so <clears throat> i dove into their their indie albums and when i got you're living all over me i was like okay this is incredible music so and then i just went and got them all brilliant and and you said in your your email to us that you even managed to squeeze in a dinosaur junior gig on your honeymoon yeah how cool is that right <laughs> <laughs> well it, did your wife think it was cool so yeah, my wife thankfully has good taste in music. Oh, um, in fact, when we got married, we had a lot of duplicate CDs, but she doesn't love them as much as me, but she does like his voice. She's not too fond of the, the guitar solos and the volume and stuff, but she has seen them live a few times. But so we, yeah, we got married in 2000 and he was, Jay Maskus was doing uh, a solo tour 
And so um, when we were planning our honeymoon, I was thinking, uh, okay, Jay's going to be in San Francisco. So what if we, what if we plan on going seeing him when we're up there? She's like, okay, cool. Nice. So yeah, that was cool. <laughs> do, and do your, f- I mean, obviously your wife's uh, got good taste in music and friends around you. Do, do you generally uh, sort of share a love for Dinosaur Jr.? Uh, somewhat. Um, I think some of my friends kind of just put up with it but I did have a friend um when I was a teenager he didn't go to my high school he lived a little bit away from me so we didn't get to share that but we both kind of fell in love with them at the same time together and um so that was fun so we both got kind of nerdy about it and became obsessed with them together mm-hmm. so that was cool and do you think I mean obviously you you in the U.S you've had different exposure to to dinosaur junior than i've had here in the uk but do you think they get the love that they deserve i think it's interesting i, I kind of think that they're starting to well maybe not starting to but it almost seems like the reunion um which happened in 2005 it started to become cool mm-hmm. um i don't know if it's just because of what lou barlow brings to the table but it almost seemed like the media started to realize yeah, maybe we've missed, maybe we missed on them a little bit. So it seems like they're getting a little bit more attention nowadays, but you know, it's, I think, I think, no, I think, I think no, probably the answer is no, they don't get enough Mm. credit for what they do. But I think people who like music and people who are musicians definitely appreciate what they've brought to the music industry. So 30 years of, of love and it all boils down to, to this. I've got five questions to test your knowledge and find out once and for all if you're a, a super fan of Dinosaur Jr. or if you're a fraud. So question one, what was track one on the original release of the self-titled album Dinosaur? The original release? Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that was Bulbs of Passion. Um, it used to be Cats in the Bowl. Your logic is, is correct, but unfortunately it's the wrong answer. The original release was forget the swan and then the reissue was bulbs of passion that's an interesting question there oh i'm sorry yeah because i got i didn't get the original release my when i bought it it said dinosaur jr and the yeah the first song was not bulbs of passion all right i mean it Um, may have been so i know that the bulbs of passion was added in the 2005 reissue yeah, the, Merge reissued it, and I remember noticing, I was like, what the heck, Bulbs of Passions, first one? Yeah, and I don't think it was a great, uh, I don't know, from my perspective, I mean, you've been listening to them a lot longer than I have, but it, it wasn't the best choice to put Bulbs of Passion first. Um, but then, uh, by 2005, people aren't discovering Dinosaur Jr. with that record, they're probably going back to listen to it, uh, so, yeah, yeah uh, do less damage. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, so, I mean, it was originally... I was originally Forget the Swan, 2005, they added Bulbs of Passion as the first track, and as Jay's request, he wanted it to be the first track because he felt that it symbolized their or their new direction a bit better, uh, and it was more their own sound than Forget the Swan was. Yeah, I love Bulbs of Passion, I think it's a cool song, especially live. Did you manage to see them? Uh, would, you wouldn't have seen them that early, would you? No, first, first year I saw them was 93. Yeah. Okay, uh, how do you feel about that first record? Uh, I've got a special place in my heart for the record. I think the songs are strong. I just think the recording uh, is unfortunate. Yeah. Because um, 
when you hear those songs live, it almost like, for example, Forget the Swans, when you hear it live, it's, it feels like a different song than it does on the CD. So yeah, I don't know. The album, the songs are there. It's just the recording is struggles. Uh, yeah, it does. I also think it's a little bit, you know, stylistically, it's a, a little bit all over the place, but often a debut album sometimes is. Uh, when they're coming with lots of different influences and they haven't quite discovered what direction they're going to take it. But it's not it's true. Not the easiest listen for someone who's not already a Dinosaur Jr. fan, I feel. For, sh- for sure, yeah. I would never tell someone to start with that album. <laughs> and there's definitely quite a lot of influence from, uh, you know, Mascus and Lou's previous band, Deep Wound. Mm-hmm. Are, you, would you, are you interested in that hardcore sound? I mean, Deep Wound, yeah, I don't listen to Deep Wound very often. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, yeah, I had I had a few years where I delved into punk rock quite a bit, but mm. um, yeah, nothing that crazy though. All right, well, sorry about question one. I'll give myself half a point because I knew Bulbs of Passion was the one that got was switched. The one they it used to be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So question two: Who painted the cover art for a number of records throughout the eighties and nineties, including "You're Living All Over Me" and "Bug"? Um, the name that comes to mind is uh, Mara Jasper. That is correct. Uh, favorite album covers? Do you have a favorite? Green Mind. Oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, that is a cool picture. To what? me, that's yeah. To me, that's like that album cover is it's among one of. I don't know. I think it's besides just me being a super fan. I think it's just a cool album cover in general. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think it belongs with a lot of others that are really cool. But yeah, Dinosaur Junior has a lot of cool artwork, and that's the one where it's not artwork. It's just a picture. But yet, yeah, it's. It's really cool. That's true. Is that that's the only album that's got a photo on the front, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Do you know uh, any history about that photo? What it is? I do. Um, <clears throat> I forget the dude's name, but it was kind of like a hobby that this person went around just taking pictures of people, and you can actually find. I think you can find it online. It was he put it in a book, and I think that picture is like from the '60s, maybe early '70s. Right. And I think I think it was Jay just kind of came across it and he thought it was cool and there we go. It is a good one. So, so for yeah. the listener, it's a young girl I think smoking a cigarette on yeah, a beach. Yeah, it's a young girl. Oh. Yep. Yeah, it's a striking, striking image. So Mara Jasper did your "Living All Over Me" and "Bug" and that kind of completes that original trilogy with the classic lineup before things kind of fell apart. That era of the band. How do you see it from your perspective? I mean, I think you're living all over me is the best album ever for me it's just every song is amazing until you get to Polito and I check out <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> uh, yeah I mean I remember I didn't even know it was a great album I just figured okay I know the band's good so I'm gonna go get this I didn't know it was critically acclaimed and I went and purchased it and I just was I was blown away the first song, first time I heard Little Fury Things it was like the perfect song and then the next song comes on, and it's wow. And then Sludge Feast, same thing. And then I heard The Lung, and I'd never heard anything like that before either. Like yeah. every song, and then Raisins was amazing, Tar Pit, In a Jar, all those songs just... And that was that the first album that you'd bought by them? Uh, so I got Where You Been first, mm-hmm. and I think You're Living All Over Me was the second one. So then I was, yeah, I guess you could say then I was, I was hooked. I realized, okay, this is, this is what I like. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I'm so glad you got you got question two. You pulled it back. You can still come <laughs> out of this with four out of five. So question three. What is the name of the recording studio at Jay's Amherst home? Uh, it used to be 
It used to be Bob's house. I think it's called Biscuitine Studios now. That's the answer I've got. Yeah, Biscuitine. Yeah, they used to call it Bob's house. Yeah, it burnt down. Um, I think it was actually in his backyard, and then there was a fire, and it burnt down. And it was named Bob's house because of his dog. Was named Bob. You can see him in artwork for Hand It Over, and also a video on that album. Bob was in that video for I'm Insane. He's in the little bulldog that he's got. Mm -hmm. But yeah, burnt down. And so then he moved his studio inside of his house. All right. I didn't know any of that story. And do you know where the name Biscuitine comes from? I don't know. That's kind of random. Yeah. Um, they, they recorded everything after after they reformed in 2007. When they, when they reformed, was it was it everything you expected it to be? Or, um, you know, t- oh, took you by surprise? So or? I wasn't expecting it. But then when I found out about it, um, me and my friend, we weren't living in L.A. anymore. So we, we went down and we got tickets to see the first reunion show. And they played in Spaceland, which mm-hmm. is near L.A. I got to see, yeah, the first reunion show. And I remember thinking, so I'd seen Jay in the Fog quite a bit, um, which was kind of 2000, 2001, 2002, that kind of era. Right. And I started to feel like Jay was kind of mailing it in a little bit, like his solos and the whole vibe. Like there just wasn't a great energy. Like, huh, is he really into this, you know? And so I was comparing those shows with that reunion show in 05 with Lou and Murph, and it just felt like that you could feel the energy. His solos just sounded really, really cool. And it just, to me, there was a big difference. There was a better energy. Yeah. I remember just feeling blown away by some of the solos that, that night. Uh, you think he was a bit tired of not having the, not having the and Lou behind him? I don't know. This could be in my head. It just, it's just what I observed, you know? Mm. Maybe I was tired of Stooges covers. I don't know, <laughs> but it was it was it was it was awesome. Yeah, at least you got to see Jay in the interim period, though, when there was no when there was no Dinosaur Junior. Yeah, it was cool. And had you? Did, I think you mentioned you weren't expecting them to get back together. No, no, no. In fact, as far as I knew, they yeah, him and Lou we weren't even talking. Funny story. Um, I got to meet Jay in '94. Oh, right. When during the Without a Sound tour, my friend and I, the, the other super fan, <clears throat> we ditched school and we went to Santa Monica. We lived about 40, I lived about 40 miles east of LA. So we went to Santa Monica. We got there at 11 or 12. We're, we're way early, way before the show. And uh, there were caterers getting ready to make food for, for whoever's playing, you know, the bands and stuff. Yeah. So we just made friends with them. And Finally, they said, hey, you want to help us? And so we're like, yeah. So we get inside the venue and uh, we start helping the caterers and we just never left. We just stayed there. And then all of a sudden we met um, Tiffany Anders, who sings backup on some songs on um, Where You Been. And we helped her with all the merch, got free shirts, got free uh, stickers and other stuff. And then finally we got backstage passages. Oh my God. And so we were just hanging out kind of backstage the whole day, all night. And then finally, Jay and the other guys show up and I had made, <laughs> I had made a homemade t-shirt. It's just a white t-shirt and I wrote, Lou Barlow is a loser. So that's what I, <laughs> and I met Jay Vasquez for the first time. So we took a picture and I was wearing a shirt that said, Lou Barlow is a loser. And I don't know what he thought. He probably thought it was funny, but... <laughs> Was that just because you were jumping on the bandwagon that, that he was not talking to Lou at the time? Yeah, kind of. We were, you know, we knew of Sebado and 
we just felt like, all right, if Jay's going to draw a line here, we're going to draw a line too. So <laughs> right. we're, we're all Dinosaur Jr. and not Luke Barlow. So. Brilliant. Oh, so cool that you met him. Yeah, it was really cool. He wasn't really thrilled about it, but... Uh, he's not, very, cool he's not thrilled about much, I don't think. <laughs> he's not the most no. charismatic, is he? No, I've met him a couple of times and usually it's just like, oh, all right, cool. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you have but, to talk to him about guitars. He doesn't want to talk about his music or other stuff. Yeah. He'll talk to guitar magazines and tell them anything they want to know. But That is a funny one. All right, brilliant. Well done on that. So question four. What year did Dinosaur Jr. play Lollapalooza? 93. I saw, him, I saw them in May of that year, and they would have played in L.A. I think, I think Lollapalooza was kind of, I think it ended in L.A., Okay, but I was on a family vacation. I couldn't go, so I was bummed about that. And this was uh, this was the Mike Johnson years. Yeah. So how do you feel about Mike's contribution to the band? I loved Mike. I thought. Yeah. I thought he was cool. You know, he had his own vibe. Mm. He'd wear these like dress clothes and had short hair, and he just he seemed like he didn't care, just like Jay, but kind of in his own his own way. You know. Yeah. He put out a really cool album in '96 or '7. And Jay played drums on it, and it was pretty strong. Is that a solo album? Even, yeah, it's a solo album. I think it's called Year of Mondays. Oh, uh, right. He's got other stuff too, but that album I thought was really good, and he had some strong songs, and they even played one of his songs live All right. that year in the tour. So yeah, I thought Mike was cool. So so on that period then, from Green Mind to Hand It Over, the lineup was kind of pretty much constantly changing. Right, Every, every record had a slightly different lineup. Do you yeah. do you feel because I know that you know the way that Dinosaur Junior music is put together is slightly unconventional. A lot of the time, Maskis puts it all together himself and then gets other people to play it. Can you hear the difference um, in that period where he was kind of mixing things up a bit? I can because I'm a drummer, so I can hear okay. when Jay plays drums and I can hear when Murph plays drums. Right. So for me, yeah, like I could just hear the styles on without a sound. Just you can just feel you can hear the kind of the jazz background of Jay's style, whereas Murph just attacks the drums kind of in a in a punk rock background. That's really just kind of his style. Yeah, definitely. So that's one way I can feel I can hear the difference. Um, but that's for me. That's kind of the biggest the biggest one. And from from around that period, so I'd say yeah, Green Mind to hand it over. You have any favorite records, favorite songs? I mean, to me, where where you been is of those eras like the 91 through 97 i think where you've been is my favorite just the feeling of that album the way it sounds i feel like every song on there is great and yeah songs to me that stick out or what else is new out there for sure mm -hmm. those two stick out thumb is an amazing album from green mind or amazing song from green mind and you've got a little bit of Murph on Green Mind as well, haven't you? I think it's three yep. or three or four tracks. Three songs. Murph is on there. Yeah, and then he plays on the What Else, the Whatever's Cool with Me EP as well. Plays a little bit on that. All right, brilliant, great work. Question five. It all comes down to this, and actually, you've already touched upon this. The music video to which song features a skateboarding dog? Yeah, that'd be I'm Insane. Ooh. If you're confident on that, I'll, I'll have to go and watch the video to I'm Insane. I'm pretty confident. Um, oh, I got thrown off. Yeah, so that's his dog, Bob. But yeah, I guess he's not on a skateboard. Yeah, he's kind of flying. <laughs> so he's flying through oh, the yeah, sky. Yeah, he's flying at the end. Yep. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, so tiny. That's 
tiny. The, the video starts with um, the dog having a sleep whilst they're at rehearsal. And then you kind of go into the dog's dream. And in the dream, he's just hanging out with Jay, skating, skateboarding around. This isn't their strongest video. So yeah, you got me on that one, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Tiny is off a 2016 record. Give a glimpse of what you're not. And until this year, that was their most recent release. So it's pretty awesome that they're still releasing music. Are you hopeful that that's going to continue? Yeah, I kind of think it will. I think they're doing a good job. Um, yeah. I think there's still pretty pretty good energy coming from them. There's, I mean, I, I don't think anyone expects them to put out something like You're Living All Over Me or Where You Been or Bug. Mm. But for me, it's working. Um, I really enjoyed this year's album. I thought it was fun. Yeah. thought the songs were... There were some unique ones on there and some that just sounded like a typical Dinosaur Jr. song. I thought the very first song, I Ain't, a great song. And there's some that are... So yeah, I listened to it a lot this year. And they're, they're gigging as we speak as well. Yeah, we were going to go... Me and my friend, we were going to go check them out in Boston with Lemonheads, but that didn't work out. So we're going to go to Vegas and see them with Built to Spill, which I'm excited about because that's another band I like. Oh, brilliant. Um, if anyone's listening who isn't into dinosaur jr too much do you want to give a quick quick shout out as to why people should be listening man i think you appreciate melody and incredible guitars uh give them a chance they do you know them and the pixies and maybe a couple other bands that are about as good as it gets when it combines great guitar sounds and noise and melody cool that nicely sums it up i appreciate your time joe thank you very much sounds good Awesome. Three out of five, not three and a half. I've told you. I've told you, Joel. I've told you people. We don't do half points around here. I did it once and I said I'd never do it again. So three points out of five. But three is still very respectable. And I think that my first question was maybe a bit a bit unfair. And the skateboarding dog, like I said, I think I said they've got a lot of videos, Dinosaur Jr. And I think even a super fan, if you've watched all the videos, to remember all of them is a tough one and I think he's got I think Mascus has got dogs whether it's Beefy or one of his other dogs in quite a few videos so it's easy to easy to screw that one up but three out of five is still super respectable Joel so you should be proud of yourself if you want to be uh, on one of these episodes please get in touch we are coming to the end of of season one now and I'm going to take a little bit of a break but I'm going to have plenty of interludes out in that time that's not to say that I won't uh, feature some super fans in in some of the interludes but we're just not going to have the same format for those interludes. And then season two is going to start in the new year. And we're all really looking forward to, to Matt coming back and uh, and getting getting back on the podcast. So if you want to be uh, either on an interlude or on a future episode, all you got to do is contact us. Drop us a line on superfancast.outlook.com. You can reach us on Twitter. Also, just follow us on Twitter. We're very active. So actually on, on our Twitter this week, we had a bit of conversation on uh, Dinosaur Jr. and his favorite albums. So Sean White uh, commented and said that You're Living All Over Me was his favorite album. It was still raw and not as polished as Bug, but more so than Dinosaur. It also has my favorite song, In A Jar. I also loved a long intro to The Lung, but mostly I really like every song on that album. Yeah, Sean, from my... From my uh, you know, research I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, it does seem that you're living all over me is fairly consistently people's most yeah, favorite uh, Dinosaur Jr. record. Uh, and I don't know if that was 
necessarily at the time. Maybe a re- retrospective thing, but uh, the uh, yeah the hardcore fan base that they've got seem to look back on that record as as the the peak. So yeah, and uh, thanks for, thanks for commenting, Sean. We also had a comment from uh, All the Fixins Hammock, which I don't think is his, uh, is their birth name, but All the Fixins Hammock said, "Farm is my post reunion favorite." There's such richness and character in the guitar and bass playing, and almost every track is an earworm. This album also manages to capture an autumnal sadness that I can't quite put my finger on. The follow-up, I Bet on Sky, is also underrated. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm really sorry, mate, but those two records I didn't listen to much over the last couple of weeks. Actually, I Bet on Sky, maybe I, maybe I listened to once. I need, I need to go back and listen to that. And Farm, I'd listened to quite a bit over the last couple of years, so I didn't listen to it much this time. But um, interesting that you called out it, it, it captures an autumnal sadness. That's something I'm going to I'm gonna listen out for, that that angle, uh, next time I listen to it. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've maybe not given Farm the credit it deserves on this podcast. I should have listened to it a bit harder and made a couple of notes to call that one out. Uh, I think maybe I skimmed over it a bit because I had a bit of history with it already and it was all the other stuff. There's so much stuff, to be honest. You know, they've got so much material to to really give it a good listen in two weeks is quite difficult. So it was, I was always going to end up missing something, unfortunately. Um, so thank, thanks for being in touch anyway, guys. And um, yeah, everyone else, please uh, follow us on Twitter and, and get involved in the conversation. I've got to admit, we haven't got haven't got a massive following on Twitter, and would really like to have more of a following there. So all those people that are listening to these episodes, because I can see you, I can see the numbers. There's plenty of people downloading these episodes. Follow us on Twitter and uh, and and bring the conversation there. Uh, we're also on Facebook, so anywhere, just search for search for Superfancast. And then, of course, you must follow our blog, uh, superfancast.blogspot.com. You can just get it all on on Facebook and Twitter. So every Friday we release a new music review. Uh, So long as you're following us on one of those channels, uh, you'll see the new music reviews. And again, give us your feedback on those. We try to do that on a less mainstream release. We try to shine a light on some of the some of the less mainstream stuff and and get people interested in um, on the music that's not clogging up the airways. So have a look at superfancast.blogspot.com. Follow us on one of the channels. Please get in touch. Drop us an email and let us know how you're doing and, and what you want to hear. And if you'd like to throw a couple of coins our way, you can uh, go to patreon.com superfancast and you can uh, subscribe to, to throw us a couple of coins each month to help support the show. So thank you for joining us again or joining me again this time. Thank you all for, for being dedicated listeners. And I hope you enjoyed this dive into Dinosaur Jr. And if you haven't listened to Dinosaur Jr. before, if this is new to you, then please go away and take a listen and, and let us know what you think. Hope to hope to see you all again in a couple of weeks where we're going to take a deep dive into Jeff Buckley. So if you're a Jeff Buckley fan, take a listen to that. If you're not a Jeff Buckley fan, take a listen to that. I happen to be a Jeff Buckley fan, so I'm looking forward to spending the next two weeks listening to everything he ever made once again and uh, and discovering a bit more about him. Until then, stay safe, everybody. Keep rocking, and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye.